if there's a place that that we can figure out a way to get to them and get them a better level of service even if all it does is inspire the other providers there to step their game up and provide a better level of service i consider that to be kind of a good job to try and do this is episode 315 of the community broadband bits podcast from the institute for local self-reliance i'm lisa gonzalez Back in June, while Christopher was at the Mountain Connect Conference in Vail, Colorado, he had the chance to sit down with several speakers at the conference, including Matt Larson, founder of Vistabeam Internet. The company began offering wireless internet back in 2004 and has since expanded. They now provide services in Colorado, Wyoming, and Nebraska. In this interview, Matt explains his motivations for continuing to grow the company and their service area, which now covers approximately 40,000 miles. He describes how Vistabeam has helped create competition in rural areas where residents were once stuck with what they had, and how that competition has inspired incumbents to improve services. Matt also describes what it's like in the field deploying their equipment. He also talks about daily challenges and working with different agencies for funding opportunities. His insight explains how the company grew to become the 2018 Provider of the Year, the award they took home from the Mountain Connect Conference. Learn more about the company at vistabeam.com. Now here's Christopher with Matt Larson from Vistabeam Internet. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, I'm in Vail, Colorado for the Mountain Connect event, one of the my favorite events. I'm sitting across from one of the sponsors of it and uh, someone who just won an award. We'll talk about that a little bit. Matt Larson, the wireless cowboy and founder of Vistabeam. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So you got an award today at lunch and from Mountain Connect, which is very well-deserved. Uh, WISPA, the Wireless um, ISP Association, um, noted that it's the second year in a row that a, a wireless ISP or primarily wireless ISP has won it. Um, and then the, the, the person that was um, giving you the award said you served 40,000 square miles uh, of this country. Yeah, yeah. I, I had started out Vista Beam in 2004. We had, uh, I think we had three towers and part of a borrowed T1 uh, that we used to start with. And what's funny is, you know, you you put stuff up and it's like, hey, I can see that hill over there. You know, I can see this way. And before long, you know, we had spread out to cover a lot of area because we would continually get calls from people that would be like just outside of our service area saying, hey, we need to get, we need to get better internet out here. So, you know, we would you go around and you look and it's like, well, can we get on this hill? Can we get on this grain leg? Uh, is there a tower over there that we can afford to rent some space on and just kept growing out and building. And we, we did do a couple of, uh, we've done a few acquisitions of smaller operators that, uh, either weren't going to make it or wanted to get out of the business and kind of added them on. And the next thing you know, it's, you know, an eight hour drive from one end of my network to the other. (laughs) So it's a, uh, it's a challenge, but I, I like to think we just kind of followed where the demand was. We went where there were people asking for better service. And I get the idea that if you wanted to, you could stop expanding and retire somewhere comfortably and, and chill out, but it doesn't seem to be in the cards for you. It, there, there's a law of physics, you know, the law of business physics. You can only get so far before you run out of uh, human power or capital uh, to make it happen. And I, I thought that we'd expand as far as we could go la- until last summer. And then, you know, we had a neighboring 
wireless ISP that uh, wanted to get out and, you know, it's like, okay, well, we can make this fit with our, with our deal and we figure out how to make it work. But, you know, then, oh, we just added another hour and a half drive to the east of how far we have to go. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it comes across my mind once in a while. I think about, you know, if we did just stay a little smaller, this would have been a lot easier. Uh, but I also feel pretty passionate about what we do. Uh, one of the places we expanded into last year was Walden, Colorado. You know, there was a, an entire County that their entire broadband footprint consisted of, you know, about one square mile in the middle of town and the maximum speed anybody could get was 10 meg. And even that was very unreliable and they needed somebody to get them some alternatives. So, uh, I, I had a former customer from Nebraska that moved down there and he's like, let's call, let's call Vistabeam and see what they can do. And we figured out a way to, uh, you know, make a hop through the mountains to get them broadband. And now we've got, you know, a group of customers there and they have better broadband because we went out and tried to help them out. I wouldn't say it was like a great, financial decision by any means, you know, it kind of stretched us out a little bit Mm -hmm. and we probably could have deployed the capital in a way that would have made us more money somewhere else, but we deployed it in a sustainable way and we deployed it in a way that is going to make a difference for these people. Even if we, you know, we don't have to have every customer in that County. And once we did get our service down there, Oh, CenturyLink finally figured out how to upgrade their stuff. So they started competing with us on DSL and improving their service. So even though, yeah, it'd be nice to have a monopoly, it was also really good to basically have an alternative to the company that was not treating them very well. And that's the sort of thing that the kind of opportunity I, I still like to go out and pursue. If, if there's a place that, that we can figure out a way to get to them and get them a better level of service, you know, even if all it does is, inspire the other providers there to step their game up and provide a better level of service, then I I think that's, I consider that to be kind of a good job to try and do. Let's talk a little bit about the technology that you're using. I I know you're primarily wireless because I I know you also do some fiber. Um, I think many WISPs are are moving in that direction of using both where where appropriate. Um, But for someone who's not familiar, what is fixed wireless and, and how does it work? So fixed wireless is basically... Uh, if I go all the way back to the original history of it, you know, we were taking an indoor Wi-Fi access point and putting an outdoor antenna on it and shooting it several mile, miles uh, to connect to somebody. What we've seen is over the last 25 years, you know, the equipment has really evolved. You know, when we started out, we were able to do, you know, one meg was about the top speed that we could offer. But the equipment's just gotten better and better, even though at its core, it's essentially the same thing as what we started out with. You know, it's a, you know, Wi-Fi based chipset on both ends with outdoor antennas that's been modified to be very interference resistant and to deliver much higher, you know, rate of speed. A lot of people think wireless and they're thinking cell phones. So the biggest difference with fixed wireless is we actually put a big antenna on the roof. You know, not necessarily big, but it depends on how far, uh, away they are from the access point. Certainly big compared to a cell phone. Big compared to a cell phone, definitely. Uh, but the thing is, the bigger antenna you have, that means you can get a higher signal. When your cell phone's got like one bar or two bars, it barely works. So what we're doing is having the equivalent of a very, very strong signal. That gives us the signal-to-noise ratio to be able to offer a very high speed and a very reliable speed. That means we can have, you know, 
right now the package that we're we're pushing with all of our newest technology is you know 50 meg for 50 dollars a month and that's a speed that we feel we can go out and deliver with today's technology uh, very easily uh, we can make it reliable it's got uh, low latency I, I think that's probably gonna be adequate for most people uh, it's it's not like having fiber but it's also something we can deploy into areas at a very low cost compared to fiber. And then, you know, we, we tie back, we're going to have to tie back into fiber at some point anyway. So what I think makes a lot of sense is, you know, we go out with the fixed wireless, we get people on now and address their immediate need. And then over a period of years, you know, it might be, you know, three, four years, it might be seven or eight years, however long uh, it takes. Then I think, fiber will get built out to the places where it makes sense to build it out. Even if it's to feed smaller cells of wireless, uh, we're going to need to do that to kind of keep up with, with a lot of the bandwidth demands, but that's the long and short of how the technology gets out to the customer, uh, to get that internet out to the customer. There's also, you know, we have to have a co-location. We do have a lot of fiber. We either rent fiber. We do have about 25, 30 miles of our own, uh, fiber that we either own and put in or we have IRUs on. Uh, we have a lot of licensed microwave links that are capable of doing gigabit speed. Uh, we have a lot of unlicensed links. We'll use those for like the last you know couple of hops to get out to somebody that's really remote. But putting the system together in that way, we've, we've been able to design a network that's really reliable. Uh, it's very robust. You know, We've got backup connections. So if one tower goes down, it doesn't mean five other towers are affected mm-hmm. you know we have everything it can like reroute and go around uh outages we're working on kind of improving our power setup we don't have like this giant when we started out you know we would just plug in the radio and plug it in the outlet and go well nowadays you know we're, we're we've really stepped up our game on trying to make sure we've got good reliable power you know people ask about you know is wireless reliable and it's like it's honestly it's as reliable as the power grid is because uh, most of the outages we have are related to uh, failures on the power grid. Weather comes through, you know, if wireless connection goes down. It's probably because the power went out to where the, you know, or something got hit by lightning. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of fixed wireless in a nutshell. $50 for 50 megs. What's the upload speed? So the upload speed on that is five meg. And the reason we do that is when you deal with wireless, um, you've got time slots. So just imagine within within one second, You've got like a thousand little tiny time slots where you can send data back and forth. What we end up doing is we devote more time slots for the download because that's what most people want. And that's that's what we see on our traffic pattern. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is we've optimized the network to be able to offer the higher download speeds that way. And then if we had to, we could allocate more time slots to the upload if that's what seemed to make more sense. But to run the network in the most optimal fashion and meet what our customers are actually using it for, it makes more sense to optimize it for the download. When you get into more urban areas, um, don't you have other technological options for, I mean, different wireless technologies where you would be able to offer more symmetrical speeds if you wanted to? Like, I'm just I'm just thinking of some of the WISPs I'm familiar with, particularly urban WISPs, they seem to yeah. be more symmetrical. I'm, maybe it's just because it's a shorter distance. Well, like, so when I'm talking about this 50 meg for 50, um, that's, that's like going off of a shared access point. So we have to optimize it. So when we're dealing with uh, commercial customers, most of the time we do like a point to point 
And that's like a dedicated radio on our end and a dedicated radio on their end. Mm -hmm. And that's a situation where we can optimize the upload download to what they want. So if you've got a business that wants to have 50 meg down and 50 meg up, then we can go in and optimize that to work that way. When you get into like closer ranges, we start to get a lot more options. So there's, there's been a lot of development in uh, some of the higher frequency uh, unlicensed spectrum bands, uh, especially 24 gigahertz and then 60 gigahertz. 60 gigahertz is actually really closely, that, that, that's called millimeter wave. And that's the sort of thing that they start talking about uh, as being part of 5G. Mm-hmm. Now, millimeter wave, I don't think is going to work, work very well at all for 5G because it's very directional. It's very short range. Uh, it does have a lot of capacity though. So we can take point-to-point uh, 60 gigahertz and actually do gigabit speed wireless with it. We just recently did that in a town in Wyoming that uh, they they just had DSL and some very low-speed cable, uh, no fiber provider there. So we've, we've actually put gigabit wireless in the downtown area, and we're starting to put customers on that on that system. And we can optimize that to have you know the same upload and download uh, for whatever whatever applications that we're going to use it for. And so far it's been, it's been really well received by the the business community in this town because previously they were struggling with like 10 meg packages. And you know, that was, that was all they were able to get from, from probably ESL. advertised as 10 meg and, and not quite delivering it at, at the, from the provider. Um, I'm curious about a telephone service. Do you do telephone service on your network? Yes, we do. So you do telephone service and a very reliable, um, internet product that's a uh, high speed, certainly higher than what the FCC defines as broadband. Um, how much money do you get from the FCC compared to um, CenturyLink and other big providers that are in your area? We've never done anything with uh, any federal programs up to this point. I, I, I'd like to kind of see what happens with uh, Connect America Fund. You know, hopefully there'll be an opportunity for us to participate in that. But uh, we haven't gotten anything from the FCC. We've seen uh, millions and millions of dollars of subsidies poured into companies that compete with us. And compete with an inferior product, vastly inferior product. You said it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wouldn't disagree with your uh, characterization of it. Uh, yeah, where we've really had a lot of success is in, uh, we, we've had some success with the state. So after we got internet into... Uh, the town of Walden, Colorado, for example, we applied for a grant from the Colorado Broadband Fund to extend that service out to the rest of the county. So we, we were successful. We were awarded that grant. So we intend to use that to build out, I think we're looking at about 16 small towers around the county so mm-hmm. we can get that extended out to everyone. So it's not just the people who live in town or the people who live really close to the tower. We can We hope we can get to everyone. Um, we've done uh, several programs with the state of Nebraska. Uh, they have a Nebraska internet enhancement fund for communities that don't have adequate internet access. Uh, I just found out, uh, when I was driving down to the show on, on Monday that we got a $25,000 grant for a little town in Nebraska to rebuild their cable system. And we actually, we bought the cable system and then, uh, kind of found out that cable is a little bit more complicated than we Hmm. thought. It's a little more complicated and wireless. So, uh, but we're going to do that. But the long and short of it is we've had a lot more uh, success working with state programs and local initiatives. Uh, in Nebraska, they have a program called LB840 that provides money for uh, job creation. And then they also do low-interest loans. So uh, late last year, 
we got a $100,000 uh, grant for job creation, you know, $10,000 a job. Mm-hmm. And then we got a $50,000 low interest loan uh, to use to help build our network out. And that was huge for us. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that's nice about it is uh, it's a lower burden on, you know, of paperwork. When dealing with the federal deals, it's like you about have to take 15, 20% off the top just to deal with uh, regulatory compliance. You know, working with some of these local entities and the states has been far, far easier than trying to deal with the uh, federal program. That's where I think a lot of the alternative providers out there can look at, you know, local and state resources to try and get something put together. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about like if we're looking at this uh, this area of Colorado where you're building out to the county. Um really curious, what does it take to site a tower to like go from I'm assuming a computer program that tells you the optimal location to figuring out how to get that tower in place and putting radios on it. Um I'm I'm sure it's probably a long process, but what are the highlights? One of the first things that really got the process rolling was talking to a local and the, the guy that owned the local newspaper seemed like he knew everyone. And so we sat down and was like, okay, well, how about here? You know, he's like, well, I think if you put one there, this guy owns this ranch and I think he'd be good to talk to. And we just kind of went around and, and, you know, traditionally, uh, like cell phone carriers, they pull up a list of all the commercial towers in an area. And then it's like, all right, we'll rent this one, we'll rent this one, we'll rent this one. This is the equipment we need, you know, and it's, it's kind of a straightforward process. Mm-hmm doing it in this county very different i think there's only two commercial towers in the entire county uh so i went through and you know worked with this local to kind of figure out where people were and uh the places where we'd have some demand and we put together kind of a map of you know the places we needed to get to we've got that so first step is we have to figure out where we want to go then we have to secure you know some kind of an agreement with the landowner that we can put something there and one of the things that makes that a lot easier for us is we've developed a portable tower that can basically be deployed in an afternoon. Uh, it's a, you know, it's got like four outriggers and it goes up about 30 feet and we can roll out there and it's got a, it's got a couple solar panels and a battery pack. We do all the, every, we have everything pre-assembled, show up on site, uh, move it off the trailer, put out the outriggers. It's got a flip up tower. So we flip, flip it down, put the tower sections on do all of our wiring, mount all of our equipment while it's down on the ground, lift it up into sight, and then the guy climbs up and points everything. And by the end of the day, it's working. And you don't need to get a permit from local government to do that? Um, you just need the permission of the landowner? Yep. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it falls under OTARD guidelines because, A, it's it's a it's a temporary structure. It's under 30 feet, so uh, we're generally not deploying anywhere near an airport, so we don't need to worry about any kind of FAA regulations. Um, there's no permitting to like do trenching or dig a hole mm-hmm. or, you know, to run fiber or power to it or anything like that. So it's really like literally the fastest way to try and deploy internet into a location. So the way we have this lined up for that County is we're looking at placing probably 10 of those portable towers out there. And each one, uh, the idea is each one should have probably a 200 to 250 meg, uh, work of, worth of backbone capacity and should have enough capacity to handle like up to 75 customers. We kind of conservative, conservatively estimate that if we put up, put up a access point, we could probably put about 25 people and these towers we typically will have three sectors. So we drop those out and then we go around and once they're there, we visit them once a year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. 
unless there's you know damage or lighting or something like that. Are they vulnerable to to wind and things like that? I mean, I'm curious. You said they're not they're not permanent structures. So how long does something like that last, and what happens next? The very first one we installed, uh, I think we've had it up for five years. It is between Hannah and Rollins, Wyoming. If there's a windier place in the U.S., <laughs> you would be very hard pressed to find it because that place the wind just blows and blows and blows. But we are on top of a hill there, and it has had four pretty big dishes on it. Uh, we may have actually added another dish to it, but it's got four good-sized two-footer larger dishes on it. And it's been sitting there for five years, and we have never had a problem with it. I'm not saying one couldn't get tipped over or knocked over, but if it does, there's bigger problems in the area. <laughs> uh, so I, my experience with them has just been uh, it's been fantastic having a tool like that. Uh, and yeah, you know, and the, uh, the other thing that's really nice and we really haven't had to worry about this yet, uh, is, you know, if we have a dispute with the landowner or something comes up and we can't keep it at that location, then we pack everything up and we move it to a new location. Well, that's what I was curious about. Also, do you, I mean, with the landowner agreement, is that typically, I've heard some people talk about just giving the landowner free internet access. I'm guessing it varies from landowner to landowner. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, a lot of the places where we're doing this stuff, uh, it's a landowner wants some free internet. Uh, so the, the deals vary widely. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit cleaner if we can just say, well, here, we'll, we'll sell you service and then we'll pay your rent. You know, mm -hmm. that way it looks a little bit cleaner. Cause then you've got, we get too many of these exchanges and, you know, and it kind of starts to throw off, kind of starts to throw things off. So our preference is to just pay, just, just pay land rent. If somebody wants internet, then, you know, we make it available to them. Mm -hmm. So that that's the way we like to do it. But we, there's a lot of trades still out there. You know, you get busy and, you know, we're at the point, I think we've got 300 sites uh, and they range from, you know, being on giant commercial towers to, you know, a pipe sticking out of the ground. I mean, we, we've, believe it or not, there's a few places where, where we have that. that. That's a lot of stuff to keep track of. Mm -hmm. Big cell phone companies have entire floors in their their corporate offices that deal with that, uh, and we we kind of have to go through and get that all ironed out. We have most of them pretty clear, uh, and we've got the process down. You don't drag power to them, then? I mean, the the solar panels strong enough to take care of it. Doesn't collect snow or anything. How does how does we, that work? We've got some that we have to go visit, to wipe the snow off of, but we've kind of got it figured out. What's really interesting is uh, when you work with solar power, you find out that. Everything looks great until about December 10th. So you find out that almost every outage you had, every outage that we had last year came between December 10th and January 10th. And it was a function of either snow-covered panels or just the fact that that's when the sun, sun is at the lowest. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, this last year, we had one site in particular we had a problem with because it was built to handle X, you know, it was built to handle like three devices. We'd gone out and done an upgrade and added two more devices to the tower, but we forgot to add more solar capacity or battery right, capacity. Right, it's a battery draw. So we were fine, except for the last three days of December. You know, it, two in the morning, the site would go offline, and then it wouldn't come back on until eight or nine o'clock in the morning when the sun got up and was putting out the power. Sure. And other than that window at the end of the year, is that's that's where we have problem with solar. Um, we had a little. We we do have some sites where we have wind. Uh, and actually, you know, in an ideal world, you know, you'd have a small, you'd have your panels and you'd have wind because a little bit of wind will charge up batteries really fast. 
the problem in Wyoming is there's so much wind it shreds the generators. Literally, the I've I've seen generators we've got to, and the blades were gone. Mm-hmm. They just blew off, right. or they seized up because the bearing couldn't take all the wind. So everything's got its own challenges. But we've we've gotten to the point where I feel like the uh, the solar uh, we've been deploying those for oh, almost ten years now. The technology's gotten better, and our monitoring system has gotten to the point where we're starting to see, you know, we start to get alerts ahead of time, you know, so hopefully two, three days ahead of time, we can say, all right, we're going to have to visit this site and either put in fresh batteries or put in a work ticket to upgrade the solar. So one of the one of the common complaints I have when I'm talking to people in rural areas and the subject of WISPs comes up is uh, there's a number of WISP operators that are giving the the entire technology a bad name in some ways. You know, some of them are, are overstating what they can deliver or they're not delivering the reliability. And um, I'm just curious if um, if that's something that, that bothers you or you feel like degrades your, your branding and, and that sort of thing or, um, you know, how do you react to those who are, um, out there publicly arguing that no one needs more than two megabits a second and um, and that sort of thing. There's wild variance among all ISPs. Even Comcast has pla- there's places where Comcast just works awesome. And there's places where Comcast doesn't work very well. Sure. Yeah. All I can do is control what my company does. You know, we've put a lot of effort into trying to upgrade our product and do the best job we can taking care of our customers. Even so, there's going to be some people who are not happy. The errors generally fall into two two things. One of them is a problem with deployment where it's real easy with wireless to get your first few links up and your first few customers on and to see like these amazing results and be like, wow, everybody's going to have these great speeds mm-hmm. and all this. And then the complication just increases exponentially. There's kind of a rule of thumb. It seemed like early on there was lots of wireless ISPs could get to about a hundred customers. Cause that's about all one person could take care of. And sometimes you'd see them hit 200, but if they didn't figure out how to scale, you really had to get from like a hundred customers. One guy can kind of moonlight that 500 customers is going to take two, three people to really take care of it. And then the next one was like a thousand customers and then 2000. And it's kind of generally considered 2000 customers. Once you hit that point, that's like a sustainable point. And that goes back all the way to dial up ISP days. Most of the big mistakes are made by uh, companies that either don't know how to deploy. Uh, there are some very well capitalized companies, uh, you know, small telephone companies, electric utilities, uh, some towns that have had all the money in the world and didn't know how to deploy their equipment. You know, the best examples of that was what Earthlink did in Philadelphia. You know, that, right. that's that's I'm really dating myself there. That's old. That's <laughs> from like 2004, 2005. You right. probably heard stories about that. Uh, their deployment methodology was complete BS. There was no way that network would ever work. Um, it was a complete hoodwink on you know the people of the city and investors to try and try and see that. I I remember being an ISP con with one of my friends that runs a Wisp, and you know they were up on the stage giving the presentation, and they asked the guy a technical question, and I don't even remember what the deal was, but uh, my friend John and I we nearly had tears in our eyes because we were laughing so hard at how bad it's like these people have no idea what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, that's, that's one side of it is there are some well-capitalized companies that just don't know what they're doing or have overestimated how the stuff works. It can be a little random. It takes some experience to kind of figure out how to deal with some different problems. And I think a lot of utility companies and, and cities 
they, they kind of want something that's predictable that it's like, okay, this is going to do exactly, I'm going to spend this much money. This piece of equipment is going to do exactly what I want to do. Mm-hmm. It's going to continue to do that for the next 30 years. Wireless, it's the sort of thing where under these conditions, I'm going to put it in and it's going to do this, but then I add more people and the performance is going to change. And then I have to work around somebody else, put some other wireless stuff up. And that's exactly what that. I wanted to ask you. Yeah. And, yeah. and you just, you really have to, uh, it, it really takes a while to kind of develop the feel for it. Um, so like I said, on one side, you've got well-capitalized people who don't really know what they're doing. And then on the other side, I think you've got like some guys that are like real tech heads. There's some like really good, uh, really intelligent people are doing things, but they aren't capitalized enough. And so they may not have the ability to go out and upgrade to later equipment or to try and change their deployment methodology. Uh, and you know that we've, we've done several acquisitions of guys that got started and they were doing okay, but then they just realized oh, this wireless ISP thing is a lot of work. So, well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, if you had, I'm sure you've had those days where you're kind of thinking, Oh, I have to 10 things on my to-do list. And then you get a call that maybe in a part of your network, there's some interference that just came out of nowhere and you have to go and investigate and, and try to deal with that. Yeah. It's honestly the, the interference part is, not as bad as you might think. Not in Western Nebraska, perhaps as much as like well, I was thinking. The monkey brains in San Francisco, I think they have a, a challenging environment. Um, but I mean, I could very well be wrong. I'm just making an assumption. You'd be surprised. I, I uh, there, there's one town in Wyoming with three wisps in it that are all successful and very active, and I would put that noise floor up against anywhere. I, I think, you know, especially, you know, we've got five gigahertz where you've got uh, like 150 megahertz worth of spectrum shared by multiple providers that all have, you know, there's probably 75 or more outdoor high power access points all pointed at each other. Hmm. So it is, it is like all out RF war there. I don't know that you would find anything a whole lot worse than that in downtown San Francisco. Luckily, that's kind of one of the rare cases. There were a lot of early naysayers that talked about, you know, the tragedy of the commons, how there was going to be, you know, there's only room for one good guy wisp. But as soon as another one moves in, they're all going to fight each other and then everything's going to degrade and then it's just going to fall apart. What's happened is the technology's gotten a lot better. So we have a competitor that runs the same type of equipment we do. And we're actually working on a program where we're going to synchronize our channels and use GPS synchronization which will essentially eliminate us interfering with them and them interfering with us. I think there's some opportunity to kind of work together. For the most part, we've been lucky to have operators who are pretty respectful. I, w- I would prefer to build a relationship rather than to try and go in and you know, step on somebody's throat, take their mm-hmm. market over. Uh, I've got lots of places where I stayed out of a location that I probably could have gone into because I knew that there was a guy there that was doing a pretty good job. You know, that, that has actually worked out really well because sometimes those people, those areas we didn't go into when those guys wanted to sell, they came to me or, you know, instead of, you know, going to somebody else. So, so as we're, as we're wrapping up a little bit, there's a lot of other topics and for people who aren't familiar, you and I have debated each other, yes, we both, have. Uh, both here at Mountain Connect in a previous year. And 
on um, on the the economics of or architecture economics. I forget the exact name of the 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 list that we're we're both on. And at times I have been uncivil <laughs> because oh. of the strength of our of our disagreement. Um, but uh, you know I, I've definitely learned a lot from you over the years. And there's a lot of things I'd love to to talk about in a in a future show. Um, but the biggest question I have, just as we're exploring your business model and what it's like, is what what's your biggest headache on a on a daily basis as a as a large wisp? You know, really, the biggest headache is trying to figure out how to scale up our operation right now. The headache shifts. You know, it's different parts of your body hurt depending on what you're dealing with. You know, at one point it was financing, and you know, trying to come up with access to capital to be able to build out. When we first started, you know, you go and try and get a loan. It's like, well, I want to put some things up on top of an antenna. Antennas get struck by lightning. You know, no, they don't want to loan. Bank, bank a loan, you know, a farmer $400,000 to buy a tractor. Right. Because they know they can go back and get that tractor and turn around and sell it at a loss. You know, I want to borrow $400,000 to put up a bunch of uh, wireless equipment. That's of no use to them whatsoever if, if uh, you know, I can't make the deal work. So it was really hard at first to get access to financing. So that was probably one of our early ones. Right now, I think one of the biggest things we're, we're dealing with is getting uh, enough people that and, and getting the processes developed. We're, we're a fairly mature business compared to a lot of WISPs. And you know we're working really hard on kind of building a process map and kind of trying to standardize. You know, one of the reasons McDonald's got so successful was because they were able to take something and like make a very efficient process. And that's one of the things we're trying to do. But it's really hard to do that and run the business at the same time and try to kind of push everything forward. You know, right now I would say we're kind of dealing with some scale issues and trying to figure out how we kind of take the leap to the next level. That's probably the that's probably the biggest headache. There, there's so many other things that could potentially be issues. You know, uh, one of the things I like about WISP is they're kind of a regulatory bypass. So if somebody wants to screw with you on right away, you know, for like doing fiber, it's like fine, I'll just go over the top. Mm-hmm. Boop. There, I've got. I just put a backhaul. I don't have to deal with the phone company. I don't have to deal with negotiating with the county or anybody else. I can do this this connection, and there isn't anything anybody else can do about it. That that is a very freeing thing because I feel like a lot of our right away regulation, especially, is used to maintain monopoly position. You know, we saw that with what Google had to deal with trying to get on on uh, power poles. Right. So fortunately, that's that's not one of our headaches. You know, I think probably coming up, Spectrum is going to be a little bit of a headache. Uh, we we've had a pretty good run uh, putting stuff up in uh, five gigahertz. 2.4 has kind of gotten to the point where it's not very usable anymore. Uh, but 5 gigahertz is getting really full in a lot of places. So we're going to need to have access to some more spectrum. You know, CBRS and 3.5, I think, has hopefully has the potential to help with that. But we can't just give it all to the mobile carriers because then they're going to come in and try and offer, you know, like AT&T is offering what they call their fixed wireless. You know, and it's a $60 a month for 10 meg and... You know, that 10 meg is about two, three in the morning. The rest of the time, it's like barely functional to even do email. I I think making sure that we've got an environment where a small operator has a short enough hurdle to get into the business and then doesn't have to drop so much capital Mm -hmm. on things like Spectrum and Rideaway and that sort of thing that it takes away from their ability to go out and build a network and provide a really good level of service. 
That's that's one of those issues that I just want to I think is worth touching on the CBRS because um, where I think Wheeler got the the right the the rules more or less right in terms of trying to encourage um, smaller license sizes so that um, Wisps had a more of a shot rather than having to bid on um, you know massive territories. Yeah, and um, and I find it really frustrating that um, that it seems like now whenever there's a political transition, all these things that we thought more or less were settled get reopened because the incumbents figure out a way to to convince people that the old compromises aren't good enough anymore and yeah. they can rewrite them. I heard somebody liken it to the the way that the cell guys are trying to redo the the access to CBRS. It's like, I want to rent a flower shop. I want to rent the entire mall. Right. And they want it so you have to rent the entire mall and then turn around and sell it. And oh, there are so many things about spectrum policy that drive me completely up the wall. I went completely off script on a presentation earlier at this conference. Uh, yeah, we were talking about uh, 2.5, which there was wireless cable, and then there was an, some spectrum set aside for educators in there, and it was all from mid-'90s where this was kind of set up, and they haven't released any new spectrum in there. And this is like prime spectrum for the kind of business that I have. You know, 2.5, you can run enough power that you can go through trees. You can still offer really high capacity. You know, it carries for a long distance. It's just like ideal for rural. And it's all sitting there because of rules that were set up for something. The schools don't use a spectrum for education. They use it to turn around and lease to cell phone companies. And it just drives me up the wall that, you know, we listen to the lawyers and everybody talk about, well, we're going to see if we can work out a deal. We have to have a compromise with the schools. You know, if you really want to get Spectrum, you need to talk to a school about this, you know, and hopefully the FCC will grant this white space thing. And it's like, it's so backwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, this is, this is dumb. It's, it's almost like, I just want to say, see, it would be so great if somebody would say, look, leases are null and void as right. of January right. 1. We had what we thought was a good idea. It didn't work out the way we thought it would. We're going to use it for a higher value. We're going to redo it. Yeah. And, and there, there was another Spectrum proceeding we were looking at, um, had to do a C-band satellite. And C-band satellites, that's, that's a spectrum that's used a lot for broadcasting stuff up and down to, you know, satellites. But it can also, it's also really good for terrestrial use. And those two things should be very compatible because... You're not going to get le- in the way. Unless <laughs> I really screwed up an install, the antenna's not going to be pointing at any satellites. You know, it's going to be pointing at something on the ground. So theoretically, you should be able to use that. So the rules for that were set up in 1967. <laughs> so we're talking about rules that were set up over 50 years ago. And we have seen, I don't know about you, but I think, I think it, like a, driving a 1967 car versus driving a 2018 car, huge difference in the technology. You could take that times 10 and look at the differences between what we had for radio technology in 1967 versus the stuff that we've got available to us now. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got radios that can redefine, you know, their software definable that can go back and forth on the frequency they use. They can pick out what's noise and what's not noise and do all these different things, all these different amazing things that we can do. And we're using spectrum policy. It's 50 years old. It was designed for 50 year old technology. That should, that should really get looked at and, and be redone. Uh, I think that's going to be my new, you know, you're familiar with me ranting on, you know, the mailing list that we're on. And I think that's going to be one of my new soapbox points is we need to just chuck a lot of this stuff and try and figure out how to start over. But, 
you know, honestly, I don't know how we do that other than to figure out a way, you know, articulate a vision of what would this look like if we were to change the way that we handle this type of a problem. Mm -hmm. Even though we don't always agree about what's the right way to do it, I think we both are trying to figure out ways to get outside the box and let's say, all right, let's look at, let's look at the end result, what we want to get for an end result and try and figure out what would be the most direct way and take a lot of these rules and structures and different things that uh, exist that make it hard to do and try and figure out how to either bypass them or sweep them out of the way. Uh, there's, there's just been so much acceptance of some of the bureaucracy and some of the, the weird structures that are out there uh, in the marketplace that it would be great if we could figure out a way to do to redo this so that we could responsibly and reliably go out and uh, take care of people's needs primarily. Great. I think that's a really good way to end the show. We'll save um, a more controversial conversation for later and um, love, to, love to have you back on. I look forward to it. That was Christopher speaking with Matt Larson from Vistabeam Internet. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and Local Energy Rules. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, License to Creative Commons, and thanks for listening to episode 315 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.